Amen. Well, uh, you've just jumped this morning into John chapter 5. I've been sort of uh, dwelling in it all week. But it is an extraordinary chapter. I say there's so much in here that there will never um, do more, I think, than just kind of try and begin to open it up this morning. But it's such a vivid scene, isn't it? It's got so much eyewitness detail. Uh, John claims at the end of his gospel to be an eyewitness. And so he describes things like in verse 2... In Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate. Have you been to Jerusalem? All the gates have got names. Uh, There's a pool there, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And there are several classical uh, paintings which kind of uh, rather romanticise this scene. Um, But this is a painting by uh, James Tiso, which I think probably is a little bit more realistic than some of the more romantic ideas of, of what this scene must have been like. I mean, the Pool of Bethesda, it obviously had a reputation for its healing waters, uh, perhaps not un- unlike our very own Melksham Spa once had a reputation. Um, but I guess this would be in a place that most people would probably want to avoid. Uh, all these poor folk assembled there. Uh, no NHS, no medicine, uh, probably people begging, all sorts of horrible noises of people in pain, and it probably didn't smell particularly good. Most people would have wanted to bypass, I would imagine, the pool of Bethesda. But not Jesus. Jesus went there. And he meets our main character. John doesn't tell us his name, but he does tell us in verse 5 one detail about him, which is that this man has been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years, which presumably spent most, or maybe even all of, by this pool. It's a long time, isn't it, 38 years? Longer than Jesus had been alive. Longer than I've been alive. Um, I'm actually 38 in August, August the 3rd, if anybody wants to send a card. Um, uh, But 38 years ago was 1985 I was born. So that, just think, that's that's a pretty long time, isn't it, for somebody to have been in this condition. Perhaps just sat in that rather miserable place since the equivalent of the mid-1980s. No kind of life at all. Until he meets Jesus. And Jesus changes his life. Verse 8, he says to him, get up. Literally, rise, arise. Pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, picked up his mat and walk. Extraordinary miracle. Uh, An extraordinary sign. Sign is what John is calling these miracles. And... uh, We've said that um, at the end of John's Gospel, John explains that although there are many, many signs that Jesus did, many miracles that he did, you wouldn't be able to include them all in one book, but he's hand-selected these seven signs uh, to paint a portrait of who Jesus is, which is what we're working our way through these seven weeks. So why, our question is, why did John include this particular sign? He could have chosen any number of signs, but he chose these seven. Why did he choose the healing of this man? And what does that sign point to? Well, uh, as I mentioned, the rest of the chapter really explains. It's the theological kind of implications of what Jesus had done. The whole chapter is about this one episode. And um, so verse 1 to 15 is the the description of what happened. Verse 16 onwards is the explanation. You can see that he's drawing the links between, because in verse 8 where he says to him, rise, get up, means rise. Well, then in verse 21, when he's... uh, debating with his uh, religious opponents, he uses the same word. He says, for just as the Father raises the dead 
and gives them life, even so the Son gives life. Or look at um, uh, verse... Mm, I can't see it. Verse 26, verse 25. No, can't see it. There's a bit where the same word raise comes again. But Jesus is saying that the, the raising of this man is pointing to the raising which Jesus does. And so um, I want us to have a, a think about, because, because there's so much in here, I think we've got to look at this chapter through the lens of verse 24. So that we, we're going to sort of, um, I think this sort of unpacks for us what the significance of what Jesus is saying is. So if you have a look at verse 24, if you've got it open, I think let's read it together, and then this is going to be um, the three headings which we look at. So verse 24, let's read together. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. So let's have a look at that key verse. It says three things. It says, there's, and these are the three headings, hearing, believing, and living. So very truly, Jesus says, whoever hears my word, firstly, hearing, and believes him who sent me, Secondly, believing has eternal life, living. So those are the three things which happened to this man, and they're the three things which will happen for us as well. So first of all, hearing. Uh, Jesus, in this chapter, explains that what took place at the Pool of Bethesda is first of all about hearing. Uh, look down at verse 25. He says, very truly a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the, the, voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Or verse 28... He says, a time is coming when those who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. So the first thing that happened to this poor man was he heard the voice of Jesus speaking to him. And Jesus said to him two things. He first of all gives him an invitation and he also gives him an instruction. Look at the invitation in verse 6. He says to him, do you want to get well? Which is an extraordinary question, isn't it? It almost sounds offensive. Why on earth would this man not want to get well? But I suppose you can imagine that perhaps having sat for so long in that awful place, perhaps he might have become institutionalised. And in fact, he doesn't actually answer Jesus' question in verse 6, does he? In verse 7, he just kind of explains why he's still there. I can't get well, he says, because no one's here to help me. But Jesus offers him help. And it's the same for all of us. Jesus offers this man help. He gives him an invitation. And same for all of us today. But what's so striking is he doesn't foist himself upon this man. He doesn't foist himself upon us either. He says, would you like my help? But amazingly, I, I, I don't know about you, I find it extraordinary to contemplate the fact that so many people decline that invitation. I mean, wouldn't you have thought that what Jesus actually offers and what John says that Jesus offers in this gospel is the most amazing Free gift, past dealt with, sins forgiven, history wiped clean and a fresh start, put right with God, a future to look forward to, hope of eternity where sins will be dealt with and death will be destroyed and every tear will be wiped away and will dwell forever in glory and in peace and joy and power and purpose and meaning in the present and life with the Holy Spirit to come and empower us. I mean, who wouldn't want this invitation which Jesus gives to each of us this morning. Uh, the word which Jesus says in verse 6, where it says get well, is, it means literally to be restored, to be made whole. Well, the Old Testament Hebrew word is shalom, 
to be put right with God, to be restored, to be made whole. So he offered this man an invitation and he heard his voice and he offers us the same invitation this morning. Do we want Jesus' help? Well, taking the man's answer as a kind of, uh, go on then, yes, please. It doesn't explicitly say that he wants to, to be made well. But then Jesus says the second thing to him. He gives the instruction in verse eight. Get up, he says. Pick up your mat and walk. So maybe that's the first thing, hearing. Maybe Jesus is speaking to us. Have we heard his voice this morning? Have we heard his invitation? Do we hear his instruction? Uh, The psalm that Vicky read for us said, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Hearing, this sign points to, first of all. Have we heard? But the second thing it points to is believing. Because that verse 24, which we read, says, whoever hears my my word and believes him who sent me. The whole point about these signs, John explains at the end of his gospel, is to show us who Jesus actually is, to paint a portrait of who Jesus is. And in the explanation for why Jesus did this miracle, he tells us who he is. Look at verse 25. He gives himself a title, the Son of God, the Son of God. And uh, some people sometimes suggest that Jesus never actually claimed to be divine. Well, and the people who were witnessing what Jesus did clearly understood that to be Jesus' implication because look at verse 18. The reason why they take up stones to kill him was not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So these people understood that really what Jesus was saying was that it was a claim to divinity. And the sign is here to point to the fact that what's necessary is not just to hear the voice of Jesus, but to believe that he is who he says he is, to have faith in him. Now, I think that sometimes people think that faith has to be kind of a blind faith. Um, It's kind of a leap in the dark. And um, Richard Dawkins famously says that faith is what you need when you don't have any evidence. Faith is belief in the absence of evidence. But John, I think, here in this chapter, wants to say that's not true at all. And look at the third section, which we didn't read. It's titled Testimonies About Jesus. Testimonies About Jesus. So faith is based in evidence, uh, according to John. It's based on testimony. I mean, imagine if you're on the jury. I don't know whether you've done jury service. But you have to hear the witnesses. They give their testimony. What's our verdict going to be? We need to weigh it up and decide what sounds plausible. Uh, We weren't there. We need to make up our mind one way or the other about what happened from those who were there. So John is saying that faith here is based on testimony. And there's a few testimonies which are in this section. In verse 33, John was the one who first bore testimony to Jesus. Think of the Christmas reading that we have. Charlie Adams read it at the carol service. It was a man sent from God who came to bear witness to the light. He himself was not the light. He only came to bear witness to the light. So John the Baptist came telling us all about Jesus. Then the works that Jesus did. Secondly, in verse 36, Jesus says, I've got testimony waiting in that of John the Baptist. The works that I'm doing, they testify that the Father has sent me. So in other words, Jesus turns up and he says, I'm the Son of God. And they say, really? And he says, well, yes, look what I can do. It's testimony that I really am the Son of God. Um, believe because of this testimony. But the ultimate testimony, Jesus says, 
in verse 37 is the testimony of the Father himself, the word of God in Scripture. Verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. And these verses make clear that he's talking about the Bible. Verse 39, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very Scriptures that testify about me. So Jesus is claiming that the whole of the Bible... The whole of the Old Testament, as it was for them, was the Old Testament testimony to Jesus. Moses, who wrote, I don't know, a thousand years before Jesus, Jesus then claims was actually testifying about Jesus being the Son of God. Look at verse 46. Jesus says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he, Moses, wrote about me. Extraordinary claim, isn't it? Jesus says the whole of the Bible, which had been written by many, many people over many, many years, before he'd even been born, was actually all pointing to the fact that Jesus was going to come to be the very Son of God. And of course, so is the New Testament. The Old Testament, all about Jesus, and the New Testament testifies testimony to Jesus. That's why John says he wrote these signs down. So is it a reliable testimony? If we're going to believe, we're going to hear the voice of God, and we're going to believe in Jesus... Is it a reliable testimony? That's what we'd want to ask if we were on the jury, isn't it? Um, And interestingly, this chapter where Jesus raises this guy at the pool of Bethesda is one of the many places in Scripture where his testimony can be corroborated. So there's a book here which I really recommend, and if anyone wants to borrow it, come and ask me afterwards, called The Case for Christ. So if anybody's got questions about whether or not it's worth believing in Jesus and whether it's credible to put our faith in him, as John is encouraging us to do in chapter 5, well, this is a really, really good book that goes through and asks all of the questions which, if we're sceptical, if you're a sceptic like me, then you'd want to ask. And uh, in this um, bit where he's talking with archaeologists, he's basically making the point that, wait, where all that detail, remember that eyewitness testimony at the start of the chapter, says here's this particular bit of geographical detail, where it can be investigated by archaeology, if it's found not to be as John described it, then why would we believe anything else that John writes? But if it can be established that what John says is accurate in those incidental details, then that gives us confidence that the rest of what he's saying is true. So this is where he then says, um, some scholars have charged that since uh, that John um, possibly failed to get these details straight, he must not have been close to the events of Jesus' life. That conclusion, however, has been turned upside down in recent years. There have been several discoveries that have shown John to be very accurate, this man pointed out, this archaeologist. For example, John chapter 5 records how Jesus healed an invalid by the pool of Bethesda. John provides the detail that the pool had five porticos, or colonnades. For a long time, people cited that as an example of John being inaccurate, because no such place had been found. But more recently, the pool of Bethesda, the one that John's talking about here has been excavated, and it lies 40 feet below ground. And sure enough, there are five porticos, which means colonnaded porches or walkways, exactly as John described, which lends historical credibility to John's gospel. Now, I don't know whether those sorts of questions mattered to you, but they did hugely for me when I was trying to work out, as John is encouraging us to hear the voice of God and believe, well, can we have confidence in the testimony that the New Testament writers they claim that Jesus did all this stuff. Is it historically true? 
Well, actually, um, this book is really, really helpful, if you would like to borrow it, in helping us to see that, um, that this testimony is to be believed. So John's saying we should hear the voice of God and believe him who sent me, and but thirdly, will have eternal life. Thirdly, living. And it reminds us, doesn't it, of that most famous verse, probably in the whole of the Bible, John chapter 3, only a couple of chapters previously, where verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. Or the key verse, which is the motto for the Manor Primary School, which um, uh, Vicky was talking about a minute ago. Their motto is John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and have life in all its fullness. And that's the reason why John, as we keep saying, wrote this gospel, so that we could believe in Jesus, and by believing in him, have life in his name. So if we're coming to Jesus this morning, what kind of life does Jesus offer us? This paralysed man had a whole new lease of life. Can you imagine how his life was never the same again? He'd had 38 years of sitting by that pool, and his life was completely transformed. Well, if we hear his voice and believe that he's the Son of God, will Jesus give us that kind of life? Will he heal us? Well, he might. And we pray for those Alistair was praying a moment ago in the intercessions that God would heal in the way that Jesus did in this instance. But actually, he doesn't always. He didn't actually heal the many great numbers of people who were sat by this pool. He just singled out this one person. Although, of course, he could have healed everybody there, and actually on other occasions he did heal great multitudes. But that's because Jesus isn't primarily a healer. The miracle wasn't the end in itself. It was a sign that pointed to the much greater kind of life which Jesus offers to us. And the key word is in that verse that we read, verse 24, eternal life. It's eternal life which this sign points to. And in verse 28, Jesus again points forward to a time when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise, literally be resurrected to life. And without wanting to get ahead of ourselves, the seventh of these seven signs will be the raising of Lazarus. But even that, of course, the raising of Lazarus wasn't the main event that Jesus was all about. It was still a sign because Lazarus eventually died again. But one day, there will be, Jesus says here, a resurrection of life, a resurrection to eternal life. And that's what this sign points us forward to. There was a funeral here at St Barnabas on Tuesday. And most funerals are cremations, but this was a burial. And it's an incredibly striking thing to see a body being lowered into a grave. But as the body is lowered, the words are said, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our frail bodies that they may be conformed to his glorious body who died, was buried, and rose again for us. 
And Jesus says that there's going to be a time when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Do we believe that? That's what this sign points forward to. He wants us to hear, to hear the voice of God. Have we heard the voice of God this morning? Inviting us, instructing us. It points to belief, to the gift of faith. Do we believe this morning? Let's ask that he would help us to have faith as this man did. But ultimately it points forward to the eternal life. The Lord, the giver of life, will give to us in Jesus' name at the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray.